Wolvet, and this week we'll be featuring messages from Dr. Gary Chapman. He is the best-selling author of the Five Love Languages book and series. He is the director of Marriage and Family Life Consultants. With his extensive pastoring and marriage counseling experience, he travels the world presenting seminars to couples who want to improve their marriage relationship. In addition to his busy writing and seminar schedule, Dr. Chapman is the senior associate pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where he has served for nearly 50 years. Here's the first message from Dr. Gary Chapman this week on BBN's conference pulpit, Two Essentials to a Long-Term Healthy Marriage. I do want to speak on the topic of two essentials to a long-term healthy marriage. Whether you're married or whether you're single, I think you'll find application to what I'm going to say. I believe the two essentials are, number one, that the individuals in that marriage must feel loved and appreciated if it's to be a long-term healthy marriage. Now, you can have a long-term marriage without this. We all know that there are thousands of couples who are married and been married for 20 and 30 years. They live in the same house, but they don't have a healthy marriage. They live as roommates in the same house, processing logistics, but they don't have anything near what the Bible calls becoming one flesh, deep, deep intimacy. They don't, they don't have that. If you're going to have that kind of marriage, you must feel loved and appreciated by your spouse. And so I want to talk just a bit about what is my most popular book, and that is The Five Love Languages. Because here's the problem. I discovered this years ago that what makes one person feel loved does not make another person feel loved. Never forget the first time I encountered this in my office. A couple came in. I found out later they'd been married to each other for 30 years. They sat down, and the wife began the conversation, and she said, Dr. Chapman, I want you to know right up front that we don't have any money problems. I read in a book she said that money was the biggest problem in marriage, but not for us. We don't have any money problems. And I want you to know that uh, we don't argue. We don't believe in arguing. And she went on with two or three more positive things, and I'm beginning to wonder, did they come in here to tell me what a good marriage they have? But then she started crying. She said, but Dr. Chapman, the problem is I just don't feel any love coming from him. She said, it's just like we're roommates living in the same house, and I'm so empty. And she just went on and on and on and on. Well, when she finished, I looked over at him, and he said, I don't understand her. I do everything I know to show her that I love her. She sits there and says she doesn't feel loved. He said, I don't know what else to do. I said, well, what do you do to show that you love her? He said, well, I get home from work before she does, so I start the evening meal. He said, sometimes I have it ready. If not, she helps me, and we finish, and we eat together. And he said, after dinner, I wash the dishes. And he said, uh, on Thursday nights, I vacuum the floor. 
And he said, every Saturday I wash the car, and he said, I walk the dog after I get through with the dishes every night. And he said, uh, he said I mow the grass every Saturday. He said, I help her with the laundry. And he went on, and I was beginning to wonder, what does this woman do? <laughs> it seemed to me like he was doing everything. And he said, I do all these things to show her that I love her. And she sits there and says she doesn't feel loved. He said, I don't know what else to do. Well, look back at her. She said, Dr. Chapman, he's right. He's a hard-working man. She said, but Dr. Chapman, we don't ever talk. We haven't talked in 30 years. Said he's always mowing the grass, washing the dishes up. <laughs> you understand what's going on? A sincere husband who is loving his wife in the best way he knows how to express it and a wife who's not getting it. And over the next 15 years, I heard that story over and over and over and over and over in my office. And I knew that there was a pattern to what I was hearing, but I didn't know what it was. So finally, I sat down and read 12 years of notes that I made when I was counseling people and asked myself the question, when someone sat in my office and said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories, and I later called them the five love languages. I wasn't dogmatic that there's only five, but now that the book's been out for 20 years and sold over 8 million copies in English and been translated in 50 languages around the world, and no one has come back with a convincing sixth or seventh love language. I'm a little more dogmatic. <laughs> People have said to me, Dr. Chapman, there's a sixth language. And I say, what? And they say, chocolate. <laughs> and I say, well, if they bought it, it's a gift. If they made it, it's an act of service. And one guy did say a sixth love language is shopping. And I said, well, it sounds a lot like quality time to me. She wants you to be with her. So I want to just uh, recap these briefly for you. If you read the book, it'll be a review. If you haven't read the book, it'll be an introduction. Love language number one is words of affirmation, using words to affirm the other person. You look nice in that outfit. I really appreciate what you did. You can focus on the way they look, on the way they talk, on something they've done for you. You can focus on their personality, but you're using words to affirm them. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, love edifies, love builds up. So one way to build up a person is to give them words of encouragement. Now I meet people, like a lady some time ago said to me, she said, Gary, I know it would be good if I could give my husband some positive words. She said, but to be honest with you, I can't think of anything good to say about the man. And I said, well, does he ever take a shower? She said, well, yes. I said, well, how often? She said, every day. I said, if I were you, I'd start there. I appreciate you taking a shower. <laughs> there are men who don't. I have never met a man, never met a woman, that you couldn't find something good to say about them. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 18. No, chapter 18, verse 21. says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. You can kill your spouse, 
or give them life by the way you talk to them. Same thing is true about your children. You see, ladies, when you give him a positive word, there's something inside of him that wants to be better. And when you give him a critical word, there's something inside of him that wants to shoot you. <laughs> I remember when our children were little, my wife would tell our children what a great father I was. And I knew she was going beyond reality a lot of the times. But every time she told them how great I was, it made me want to be as good as she said I was. It's powerful to give your spouse, or anyone else for that matter, positive words. A second love language is gifts. Ephesians 5.25 says husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In that illustration, Christ himself is the gift. The scriptures say that all good gifts come down from God. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. Now, the gift need not be expensive. Haven't we always said it's the thought that counts? But I remind you, it's not the thought left in your head that counts. It's the gift that came out of the thought in your head. You know, guys, you can get flowers free a good bit of the year. Just go out in your backyard and pick one. That's what your kids do. How many mothers have ever received a dandelion from your kids? Yeah, yeah. Now, guys, I'm not suggesting dandelions, okay? <laughs> you don't have any flowers in your backyard? Your neighbor's yard. Ask them. They'll give you a flower. Or you could go to a funeral and ask the family. They'll give you a flower. I did that not long ago. I went to a funeral, and after the funeral, the church had a luncheon for the family, and I went to the luncheon, and I walked in, and I noticed they had these vases of red roses. So when I got ready to go, I just said to one of the ladies, I said, would you mind if I take one of those roses to my wife? She said, oh, Dr. Chapman, you can have this whole vase. I go home with two dozen red roses. I told her where I got them. She still liked them. pick up a stone in a city parking lot and take it home and give it to an eight-year-old boy and say, hey man, I found this today. Look at the colors in here. I thought about you. I wanted you to have this. If gifts is his love language, when he's 23, you will find it in his dresser drawer and he'll remember the day you gave it to him. Gifts are powerful communicators and for some people, they speak very deeply of love. Number three is acts of service. Acts of service. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Love not only in word, but in deed. Do something to show your love. Now, in a marriage, that is such things as cooking meals. Incidentally, anybody here still cook? A few of them. Yeah, yeah. My son came home. He didn't get married until he was 34. People would ask him, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? And he would say, when you grow up in the home of a marriage counselor, you're very careful. <laughs> but at any rate, after he got married, he came home six months later and he said, Dad, I got a bonus when I married Amy. I said, really? He said, yeah, Dad, she likes to cook. He said, I never thought I'd find a girl in my generation that liked to cook. And then my daughter married a man that liked to cook, so my kids got it made. Washing dishes is an act of service. For those of you that are married, who, who washes dishes at your house? 
Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Vacuuming floors is an act of service. Yeah, for those of you that are single, answer these questions for your mom and daddy. You know, just looking back on your, on your, on your home, okay? Uh, getting white spots off the mirror. Yeah. Uh, cleaning the toilet. A lot of you, nobody's cleaning the toilet. <laughs> Walking the dog. Mowing the grass. Washing the car. All those things that guy was doing I talked about a while ago. He was doing acts of service. Acts of service. And for some people, this is what communicates that you love them. Number four is spending quality time. By which I mean you give them your undivided attention. Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 says of Jesus that he ordained 12. We call them the 12 disciples. Now listen, that he might be with them. Jesus preached to multitudes, but he had 12 men that he gave quality time to. Now in a marriage, I'm, I'm not talking about sitting in the same room and the two of you watching television. Someone else has your attention. I'm talking about sitting in the same room on the couch with the TV off, looking at each other and talking. Those of you that are married, do you have couches? What do you do with those things? Have you ever tried this? Sitting on the couch with the TV off, looking at each other. It can be scary at first. <laughs> and talking to each other. Or taking a walk down the road, just the two of you and talking. Or going out to eat, assuming you talk to each other. Have you ever noticed in a restaurant... You can almost always tell the difference between dating couples and married couples. <laughs> dating couples will look at each other and talk. Married couples sit there and... <laughs> You'd think they went there to eat. <laughs> if I sit on the couch with my wife and give her 20 minutes looking, listening, interacting with her, I have given her 20 minutes of my life, and she has done the same for me. It's a powerful communicator when you give someone your undivided attention. Number five is physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. That's why we pick up babies and hold them and kiss them and cuddle them. And long before the baby understands the meaning of the word love, the baby feels love by physical touch. Now, in a marriage, I'm talking about such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing the whole sexual part of the marriage, arm around the shoulder, driving down the road, you put your hand on their leg, sitting around the house and they walk by and you trip them. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. As a matter of fact, if you're married, why don't you reach over right now and just touch each other? And all you singles, give an appropriate touch to somebody beside of you. Yeah, it's all right, come on, you don't have to be married to touch. Yeah, yeah, physical touch. Now listen to me carefully. Out of those five love languages, each of us, married or single, young or old, each of us has a primary love language. One of those five speaks more deeply to us emotionally than the other four. Now we can receive love in all five, but if we had to give up one, We'd give up this one. 
or this one or this one, but not this one. This is the one that really makes me feel loved. It's very similar to spoken language. Every one of us grew up speaking a language with a dialect. I grew up speaking English Southern style. But everyone grows up speaking a language with a dialect, and that's the one you understand best. The same thing is true with love. Now, once in a while, someone says to me, I don't know, Gary, I think two of those are just about equal for me. And my response is, fine, we'll give you two love languages. We'll call you bilingual. <laughs> but most of us have a primary love language, a secondary love language, and then the other three fall in line under that. In a marriage, seldom does a husband and wife have the same love language. It happens, but not very often. And by nature, we speak our own language. So whatever makes me feel loved is what I'm going to do for my spouse. So let's say that words of affirmation is my language. And I don't know anything about love languages, but I, I get married. What am I going to do for my wife? I'm going to give her words of affirmation. I'm going to tell her how nice she looks. I'm going to tell her how much I appreciate what she did. I'll probably tell her a dozen times a day, Honey, I love you. I cannot tell you how much I love you. I love you so much. But let's say words is not her language. Let's say acts of service is her language. But I don't ever do anything to help her. It's just a matter of time. One night, she's going to say to me, you keep on saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. If you love me, why don't you help me? And I will be blown out of the saddle. Why? Because in my mind, I've been loving her. In her mind, if I loved her, I'd be helping her. I believe there are literally thousands of married couples who are loving each other, but they're not connecting with each other. And some of them have been like this for 20 and 30 years. And in their minds, they're loving the other person. But in the mind of the other person, they're not feeling love. So the key is that we must learn to speak the language of the other person. Now someone says, Gary, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. But what if the love language of the spouse is something that doesn't come natural for you? And my answer, so you learn it. My wife's language is acts of service. One of the things I do for her is vacuum the floors. Now, you don't know me well, but do you think that vacuuming floors comes natural for me? <laughs> my mother made me vacuum all through junior high and high school. I could not go play ball on Saturday until I vacuumed the house. On, in those days, I said to myself, if I ever get out of here, <laughs> one thing I'm not going to do, I am not going to vacuum floors. You could not pay me enough to vacuum floors. There's only one reason I vacuum floors. L-O-V-E. You see, when it doesn't come natural, it's a greater expression of love. My wife knows every time I vacuum the floor, it's nothing but 100% pure, unadulterated love. And I get credit for the whole thing. 
we were sitting around the other night. My wife said, you know, honey, these blinds are getting dusty. <laughs> I looked over at the blinds and I said, uh, they are, aren't they, honey? That's all I said. But I heard the lady. <laughs> I cataloged it. So two mornings later, it was a Friday morning. I was getting ready to leave later that day to go do a marriage seminar. It's about 6.30 on Friday morning. I was in there vacuuming those blinds. She stumbled in and said, Honey, what are you doing? I said, Honey, I'm making love. <laughs> Big smile broke on her face, and she said, You have got to be the greatest husband in the world. Now, my love language is words of affirmation. So I said to her, Tell me one more time, babe. How great am I? She told me again. I get on the plane with a full love tank, and she goes back to finish her nap with a full love tank. Why? I spoke her language, and she spoke my language. You understand why I would say that what I've just shared with you could literally save thousands of marriages? In fact, every Saturday when I lead seminars, I'll have at least half a dozen couples come up and say, Gary, we were that close to divorce. And somebody gave us a copy of your book. And it was like the lights came on. And we looked back over our marriage and realized how we had missed each other for years. And we took the test and figured out what our language is. And we tried it. And our whole marriage turned around. You see, because we so desperately need love, when you start getting it in the right language, you are emotionally drawn to that other person. Can emotional love be reborn in a marriage? You bet. You bet. It doesn't come with the passing of time. It comes with knowledge, and it comes with a willingness to do it. Now, I did meet one man who said to me, he said, I, I understand that love language stuff. He said, I understand that. He said... My wife's language is, is acts of service, and he said, but I'm just going to tell you right now, if it's going to take my washing dishes and vacuuming floors and doing the laundry, you can forget about that. And I said, well, that's your choice. If you want to live with a woman who has an empty love tank, that's your choice. I much prefer to live with a wife who has a full love tank. If washing dishes and vacuuming floors and doing the laundry is going to make my wife feel loved, I say, bring on the laundry and give me the vacuum cleaner. It's a small price to pay to live with a happy woman. You see, the emotional need for love affects everything else in the marriage relationship. The same principle applies to raising children. Every child has a primary love language. It's not enough for parents to be sincere. Almost all parents love their children, but not all children feel loved. So we have to learn how to love children. You know, it's very, been very interesting to me in that little in, in Titus chapter four, I think it is, where it says the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. You read that and ask, what? You have to have a class. In learning to love your husband and your kids? I thought mothers just naturally love their children. What has to be learned, I believe, is how to express love in a way that's going to be meaningful to the child and meaningful to the adult. Okay? All right, let me stop there with that. The second essential in having a good 
healthy, long-term marriage is that you deal effectively with your failures. What I discovered a few years ago with the help of Dr. Jennifer Thomas, who is a Christian counselor in my city, who came to me with this idea that people also have not only love languages, but they have apology languages. And I said to her, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I think that just like in your love language book, people have different languages. I think that people have different ideas about what it means to apologize. The second essential is that we have to deal effectively with our failures. Because if you don't deal effectively with your failures, you're going to create a wall between the two of you. It happens one offense at a time. Somebody does or says something or fails to do or say something and there's an offense. And if we ignore it and act like nothing happened, we put a block in a wall. And then there's another experience and another and we build a wall between the two of us. And you're not going to have a healthy marriage. You can live forever in the same house, but if there's a wall between the two of you, it's not going to be a healthy marriage. We've got to deal effectively with our failures, and that is apologizing and forgiving. So what I shared this morning was the results of two years of research that we did across the country asking thousands of people two questions. When you apologize, what do you typically say or do? And when someone apologizes to you, what do you want to hear them say and do? And their answers fell into five categories. I promise you, we were not looking for five. I like five, but we weren't looking for five. One is expressing regret. I'm sorry. Should not have done that. I deeply regret what I've done. Sorry that I lost my temper and yelled at you. Sorry that I came home late and we've missed the program. Tell them what you're sorry for, and don't ever put a but in there. Don't say, I'm sorry that I lost my temper, but if you had not, then I would not, okay? Expressing regret. Uh, second uh, language of apology is accepting responsibility. I was wrong. I was wrong. No excuse for what I did. I accept responsibility for what I did. And for some people, this is what they consider to be an apology. And if you don't admit that you're wrong, in their mind, you have not apologized. Incidentally, this is the first step in teaching children how to apologize. Help them accept responsibility for their behavior. A three-year-old or four-year-old breaks a cookie and says, it broke. It broke. And the parent says, honey, let's say that a different way. I broke the cookie. It is not a sin to break a cookie. But we're helping that child accept responsibility for their behavior. My son was probably six or seven when he accidentally knocked the glass off the table. It hit the kitchen floor and shattered. I was in the kitchen, so I looked at him, and he said, It did it by itself. <laughs> and I said, Derek, let's say that a different way. I accidentally knocked the glass off the table. And he said, I accidentally knocked the glass off the table. It's not a sin to accidentally knock a glass off a table. I'm just trying to help him accept responsibility for what he did. I was wrong. Should not have done that. Okay? The third apology language is offering to make restitution. Offering to make restitution. 
What can I do to make this up to you? How can I make things right between us? I know I've hurt you deeply, but I value our relationship, and I want to make things right. What can I do? And for some people, this is what it means to apologize. And if you don't offer to make restitution in their mind, you have not yet apologized. Number four is genuinely repenting or expressing the desire to change. I don't like the fact that I did this again. I know I did the same thing last week, and I don't like this. Can we talk? I want to find a way to break this habit because I don't like this. I don't want to keep doing this. And for some people, if you don't give evidence that you are trying to change the behavior, they're going to have a hard time forgiving you because in their mind, you have not apologized unless you're trying to change the behavior. And then number five is requesting forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. I value our relationship, and I, I, I hope you can forgive me. I never thought of this as a, as a way of apologizing. Because in my mind, I thought people should know if you're apologizing in any way, don't they know you want to be forgiven? Why do you have to ask them to forgive you? But for some people, this is what it means to apologize, that you're asking for forgiveness. And if you don't ask forgiveness in their mind, you've not apologized. So here's what's happened, as I see it in marriages, is that there has been a fair amount of apology, but often we are apologizing in the way our parents taught us to apologize. That's where we get these languages. But the other person grew up in a different family, and they have a different idea of what it means to apologize. So you say, I'm sorry, and they're thinking you certainly are. Is there anything else you'd like to say? You think you've apologized, and they're saying to you, you have not apologized. They're waiting for you to say one of these other things. So in a family, I'm encouraging you to process this and, and see what each of you considers to be an apology, particularly in a marriage, because you came out of different families. You're going to teach your children. Hopefully, you're going to teach your children how to apologize. And you start with what I said earlier, teaching them to accept responsibility. But you came out of different families, and you need to learn what each of you considers to be an apology. And there's one other element here, and that is the nature of the offense will also affect how you apologize. If it's a minor offense, then just to speak the one language that's, that communicates to them is probably going to be satisfactory. But if it's a major offense, I suggest you use all five. And, and I'm sorry it's not going to be enough in, in, many, in many instances. So what I, what I suggested this morning, what I'm suggesting to you tonight is that we learn in the family how to express uh, uh, apology to each other, and then we choose to forgive. Forgiveness is the next step. An offense is committed, an apology is made, and then forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, we are to forgive each other, listen carefully, we are to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In other words, God is our model in forgiving. And we're to forgive others in the same way that God forgives us. How does God forgive us? If we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us. God does not just blanket forgive everybody. God forgives people who are willing to confess, to apologize, to acknowledge their failure, and reach out to him. And because Christ paid our penalty, God can forgive us and still be a just God. Now that's the model for us. An offense is committed, we apologize, and the person chooses to forgive us. I want to give you three or four or five statements on what forgiveness does not do. Because there's a lot of fuzzy thinking about this among a lot of us. Number one, forgiveness does not destroy our memory. You've heard people say, perhaps, if you have not forgotten, you have not forgiven. I don't think that's true at all. Everything that's ever happened to us in our whole life is printed in the brain. And from time to time, the memory of what they did to you is going to come back to your mind. Even after they've apologized and you've forgiven them, it's going to come back. And with that memory, there's going to come emotions because forgiveness does not erase the emotions. So you remember what they did and you have pain again. It may be hurt, it may be anger, but you have emotions that come again with the memory. Now what are you going to do if they sinned, they apologized, you chose to forgive them, but here you are three months, three years later, and the memory comes back and the pain comes back. What are you going to do with that? I suggest you take it to God, and you say to God, Lord, you know what I'm remembering tonight, and you know what I'm feeling again, but I thank you that that's forgiven. Now help me to do something that's worthwhile today. And you don't allow the memory or the emotions of the past to mess up a new day. Thirdly, forgiveness does not remove all the consequences of sin. In our day, in some circles, you almost get the idea that sin is not all that bad. God will forgive you, and it'll all be over, and no matter what you've done, everything's going to be okay. No question about it, God will forgive you if you confess your sin. But confession and forgiveness does not remove all the consequences of sin. The husband who falls in love with another woman walks off and leaves his wife and two kids, eventually goes off and marries the other lady. Ten years later, he may come to know Christ as his Savior. He may confess his sins to God and he may come back and confess and apologize to his wife and to his three children. And they may well forgive him, and they should forgive him. But it doesn't bring back the lost time with those kids. And it doesn't bring back the lost time with that wife. And I could, there are a thousand other illustrations. We are never better for having sinned. We're always worse for having sinned. A lot of biblical examples of that. Fourth, forgiveness does not rebuild trust. I often have people say to me, well, you know, I, I forgave him or I forgave her, but to be very honest with you, I don't trust them. And they're almost feeling guilty that they don't trust them. And I say, welcome to the human race, because forgiveness does not restore trust. 
forgiveness opens the door to the possibility that trust can be restored. Often, I encounter this most often and most strongly where one of them has been sexually unfaithful to the other and eventually they wake up and they apologize and they come back and they confess and they apologize and the person chooses to forgive them but they still don't trust them. And I say to the one who offended, if you want your spouse to trust you again, then you must be trustworthy. They lost trust because you were untrustworthy. Now you must be trustworthy. And if you want a practical way to do that, you say to your spouse, my cell phone is yours anytime you want to check it. My computer is yours anytime you want to look at it. And if I tell you that I'm going over to George's house to help him work on his car, it's fine with me if you call over there and make sure I'm there. I am through with deceit. My life is an open book. And if you take that response in due time, your spouse will come to trust you again. So forgiveness does not restore trust. It opens the door to the possibility of trust. And number five, forgiveness does not always result in reconciliation. In the illustration I just gave you of the husband who left and, and remarried, his wife can forgive him, his children can forgive him, but they are not reconciled. Reconciliation means it goes back to where it was and we start again. He's already remarried. They're not going to be reconciled. So forgiveness does not always equal reconciliation. Now here, here's, a, here's a key question, and that is, what if the person offends you, but they don't apologize? Well, the Bible is very, very clear on what we're to do at this point. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus said very clearly, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. A very clear picture. Offense committed. They don't come to apologize. You go to them and confront them with what's happened. And if they repent, you forgive them. That's the ideal pattern. If they don't come to apologize, you go to them. Now, the word rebuke literally means to put a weight upon. It's like putting a paperweight on a stack of papers. And if you've ever been rebuked, that's what it feels like. They kind of lay something on you. I like to say we lovingly confront them. I get the loving part from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 that says if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, those of you who are spiritual, go restore such a one in a spirit of meekness because next time you may be the one that's sinning. So we go lovingly confront. It's, 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 it's something like this. You go to them and say, I really value our relationship and maybe I have misread this whole thing, but I'm feeling hurt, and I'm feeling angry. And because I value our relationship, I want to share this with you, that when you did da-da-da-da-da, I was crushed inside. And you explain to them what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and how hurt you are, and you come back and say, maybe I misread the whole thing but I'm coming to you because I want to get this thing right if we can. And you take that kind of loving approach, you make it easier for them to say, I was wrong, should not have done that, 
and go ahead and, and give you an apology so that you can then forgive them. That's the ideal. Now let's say we do that, but our spouse or anyone else does not apologize even after we've confronted them. Here, here for example, is a, a husband who has been unfaithful to his wife. She confronts him with that. He denies it. That's almost always the first response. No, no, nothing, nothing's going on. We're just friends. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But then two months later, she finds out the real truth, and she confronts him with that, and he says, okay, you're right, but if you think I'm going to break this relationship off, you're wrong. If you want to leave me, fine, but I'm not going to break this off. So she's confronted, but he didn't repent. And so she holds all this pain inside, all this hurt inside, and then three months later, she finally goes to her pastor and shares her pain and her hurt and her sorrow and her anger and all that's going on inside of her. And the pastor, because he wants to help her, says to her, you're going to have to forgive him or it's going to kill you. And now she goes home feeling guilty because she can't forgive him. Now my question is this. Has God forgiven him? Not if he's still living in sin. God has not forgiven him. So the pastor is asking her to do something that even God hasn't done. Now, this is why I choose to use the word release rather than forgive. You release that husband to God and you release your anger to God knowing that God is a just God and a loving God. And if that husband ever repents, God will forgive him. And when he repents, you can forgive him. But to put the pressure of a wife on a wife to forgive a husband whom God hasn't forgiven, I think is undue pressure, even though the pastor's trying to help her. Now, I understand what the pastor's trying to do. He's trying to get her to, to let go of the anger and the hurt inside of her so that she can go on with her life. And that is, that is a worthy objective. And I'm not going to quibble about it, but I just prefer to use the word release. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me when I've shared what I'm sharing with you, Gary, for the first time in my life, it makes sense to me. I, I, yes, I can release him to God. I can release her to God, and I can release my anger to God. And that's what God wants you to do, release your anger to him. Don't hold anger inside. Anger held inside becomes sinful. It becomes bitterness. It becomes hatred, both of which are condemned in the Bible. We're not to hold that anger inside. If they don't repent after we confront them, we're to release them to God. Uh, biblical examples of that, uh, uh, for example, Paul said about Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's writing to Timothy. He said, Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great evil. The Lord will reward him for what he's done. He didn't say he forgave him. He turned him over to God. And he said, Timothy, keep an eye out for this man because he'll probably also do you wrong. So we release the person to God. Uh, and then, so the first step is we lovingly confront. The second step is we release them to God if they don't, don't repent. The third step is we pray for them and stand ready to forgive them. We're always ready to forgive them. Remember the prayer of Jesus on the cross? 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Read it carefully. It's a prayer, not a proclamation. He was not declaring them forgiven. He was praying that they would be forgiven. And a few weeks later, Peter is preaching to the same group that killed Jesus and said, you have killed the king of glory, and I call you to repent. And the Bible says many of them believed and many of the priests believed. So Jesus was dying so they could be forgiven. And he was praying for their forgiveness. We should always pray that they will come to repentance so that we can forgive them. And then number four, which you will never do without the help of God, is you return good for evil. You return good for evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't think you'll do that without the help of God. That's not natural to return good for evil. I remember the wife who said to me, Gary, I, uh, my husband had left me, had moved in with another lady, and I was praying one day, and I read this passage, and I felt God say to me so clearly, you need to bake your husband's favorite pie and take it over there and give it to him. And she said, I said, God, if I bake his pie and take it over there, I'll throw it in his face. <laughs> and she said, for two or three days, I struggled with that. And eventually I said, okay, God. So I baked his favorite pie. I went over to his apartment and knocked on his door. And when he came to the door, I talked to him through the screen door and, and just said to him, when I was reading the scripture the other day, God impressed me on me to bake your pie, your favorite pie and to bring it to you. And so I brought it. He opened the door and took the pie and said, well, that's very kind of you. He closed the door and went back in his apartment. She said, Gary, that was the first step in our two-year process of reconciliation. She said, I hate to think what would have happened if I had not listened to God and returned good for evil. You say, you can't make somebody reconcile. But if you follow the pattern I've just laid out for you, you're doing exactly what the Bible teaches us to do, and you are an instrument in the hand of God to influence that other person. They may or may not come back and reconcile with you, but you can look yourself in the mirror, you can look God in the face, and you can go on with your life. All right. Well, thank you for being here tonight. Let's pray together and ask God's help. Father, we thank you that you have placed us in your family, that we are brothers and sisters, that you are our Father. Thank you for your provision in all of our lives. You know our past, every one of us. You know the positive things. You know the painful things. I pray that as your children, you would give us wisdom on how to, be, how to take initiative in stimulating growth in all of our relationships. And especially, I pray, for those who may have painful relationships, fractured relationships, that you would bring to their hearts and to their minds steps that they may take that have the potential of enhancing the relationship. I ask this for your glory. I ask this for our good. In the name of Christ our Lord.